Well, it's good to be with you guys this weekend. As uh, if you've heard, we're starting a brand new series that we're calling Future Tense. And in this uh, series, we're going to be addressing the fear that kind of surrounds the future. There's a lot of tension out there about a future, and there's a lot of things to cause that tension. For example, th there's fear as it relates to our health. I mean, a year ago, none of us had any idea that probably we would be facing something called COVID-19, and now we're in the middle of it. And there's kind of a fear, like, will life ever return to normal? Will this disease ever go away? And am I gonna get it? And if I do get it, am I gonna have symptoms like a cold or is it possible that I'm gonna end up in the ICU or maybe something even worse? So there's fear as it relates to our health. There's fear as it relates to the economy. I mean, you may be wondering like me, I just turned 64 years old, uh, am I gonna be able to retire one day? By the way, you want me to be able to retire one day, I can assure you that. Uh, is that going to happen? You know, is the stock market my 401k? Do I even, am I even going to be able to keep my job? So there's all this fear. By the way, if there's that kind of fear, as you've learned this weekend, uh, Financial Peace University, a great opportunity for you to alleviate some of that fear. But then on top of that, we have the racial tension, the social issues. I mean, I know we live in a country where, you know, every man isn't just judged by the color of his skin, in theory. But now we look at it, and, and I thought this was done back in the 70s when I was in high school, and I'm looking, and I'm like, maybe, maybe it's never gonna be addressed. Maybe it's never gonna be fixed. There's kind of a fear of what's going on in our world, what's going on in our culture. And then add to that <laughs> the fear of an election that's coming up in just a few weeks. Now, I don't know, I didn't really watch the debate the other night, but I saw some news clips. I tell you what, they just freaking scary. I'm gonna tell you right now, I mean, in fact, I was surfing channels today when I got back from the gym, and Robert Johnson, who is, uh, who is the founder of BET Network, uh, this is what he said on MSNBC. I will take the devil I know over the devil I don't know anytime this week. Now, let me just say, that is not exactly a rousing endorsement of a candidate right there. And I thought when he said it, this is actually what I thought. Remember four years ago, we, what we were saying? It's the lesser of the two evils. Now we've come to a place in our nation where we're saying, well, it's the lesser of two devils. I mean, which one are you gonna pick? And so it's just gotten absolutely crazy and kind of frightening. And, and so a lot of people have been asking me and talking about, Mike, do you think this could be the end of the world? In some ways, like the song we just heard, it does kind of feel like we're, like we're living on the edge. So there's all this fear. And then there are all kinds of reactions how we actually deal with fear. Uh, Dean Martin once said this. He says, show me a man who doesn't know the meaning of fear and I'll show you an idiot that gets beat up a lot. Now that's, that's one way of thinking about it, right? And I think what he was saying is you can't just ignore fear. You can't just pretend that it's not a legitimate issue. But when it comes to fear, I would rather side with the words of a guy named the Apostle Paul. And he wrote a letter to a young man, a man that he had been mentoring. His name was Timothy. And that letter found its way into the Bible as one of the books of the Bible. And this is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. Your Bible may say fearful. It's the same Greek word. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, I point that verse out because it reminds me that God knew that we were going to battle, that we were going to struggle with fear. It probably explains why the words fear not appear in the Bible 189 times. God knew that we were gonna deal with fear, but let me tell you something. He says here, the Spirit of God doesn't produce fear. The Spirit of God produces love. The Spirit of God produces power. The Spirit of God produces self-discipline. But I'm telling you, when it comes to the fear of the future, I can understand with everything that's going on in our world why there's an element of fear. 
I mean, it's kind of crazy. In fact, to the point you're asking, maybe it is the end, or is it the end? Or some people are asking me this for the very first time. So Mike, you've done this your whole life. Is the Bible really true? I cannot tell you how long it's been since someone asked me, is the Bible really true? But there's a fear, like maybe I wanna know now. So how do, how do we know what to know during these days? How do we prepare if it is the end? And what does the Bible say about the future? What does the Bible say about the end? By the way, anytime you address a biblical topic, make sure you use the Bible. Our opinion doesn't matter for a whole lot. So in this series, we're gonna be looking at the Bible. We're gonna start Matthew chapter 24, verse three. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. I think what Jesus was saying is, don't get sidetracked. Don't get caught up in peripherals. Make the main thing the main thing. Then he goes on and says this, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But notice what he says, the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now just understand, pretty much every generation has had those signs. Pretty much every generation has experienced wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and disease and famine and earthquakes. I mean, we just had an earthquake a few weeks ago right here in North Carolina. But Jesus says, even though you may experience those things, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end. But we get a little closer when we get to verse 12 of Matthew 24. Because of the increase of wickedness, would you agree with me that there seems to be an increase of wickedness in our culture? So we could check that one off. The love of most will grow cold. This is what this simply means. Fewer and fewer people in the last days before Jesus returns, fewer and fewer people are gonna be passionate about being in a relationship with God, about the relationship with God. As things begin to draw to an end, fewer and fewer people are gonna be committed to the absolute truths, the absolute principles and precepts of God's word. And I think we could put check by that. In fact, the latest statistic I saw is that 18% of committed Christians, 18% of Christians who are like, I am all in, I am all sold out to Jesus. Back when we were having church on the weekends, remember that? Remember those good old days? 18% of committed Christians said, I make church three out of every eight weeks. I think it's safe to say that the love of most is growing cold. But notice what it says, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. By the way, Jesus said it over and over again, suffering comes before the joy. Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it, James talked about it. He says, there's suffering, and then you enter into your glorious joy. In other words, there's suffering. See, here's the biggest problem with Americans. We want heaven, and we want it now. And all of a sudden, when we're going into tough times, we realize, oh, that's never what Jesus promised us. He told us there is going to be persecution. There is going to be suffering, and then you enter into your glorious reward. Then you get to experience the joy of heaven. So then Jesus says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus says, I don't even know. Only my Father. My Father's the only one who knows when I'm gonna return to this earth. So Jesus says this. He says, the end is not going to come until the gospel has been proclaimed, the gospel has been preached to the whole world, which, but let me just bring this in here, brings up a question, can we as Christians speed up the return of Jesus? Now, if you're a Calvinist, you're like, no, it's all in concrete, you can't change anything, right? By the way, if you don't know who Calvin is, better off for you, but anyway, uh, can we speed up the return of Jesus? Well, let me show you an interesting verse, and it might change your mind. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in other words, we're not gonna be expecting him. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? By the way, let me just say this. Most references in the New Testament to the returning of Jesus Christ are followed by encouragement to live holy and godly lives. He says, like, you wanna be ready. You wanna be ready. So what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, looking, look at this. Looking for, that, that's cool, we should be, but hastening the coming of the day of God. You see that word there, hastening? The Greek word is sputo. I put it up because I don't want you to confuse it with speedo. Okay, wearing Speedos, see, take that away. Wearing Speedos, see there's some things you can't unsee, right? Wearing Speedos, men, will not hasten the return of Jesus Christ. Now, it may be a sign of the apocalypse, right? But no men under any circumstances should ever wear Speedos. It's not gonna hasten the day. But, what I, but this is what's interesting. We get our English word speed through this Greek word Speedo, Speedo. It means to cause something to happen soon, to hurry something up. So literally this verse in 2 Peter could read, looking for and hurrying up or speeding up the coming of the day of God. We actually could play a role in that. My point is simply this. It's useless for us to just sit around in our small groups with our families talking about when it's going to happen, how it's going to unfold, what order are the events going to be. You know what Jesus says? I just want you to stay focused. I just need you to stay busy. In fact, he says, my gospel will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. My gospel will be proclaimed to the entire earth and then I will return. By the way, it may surprise you to know that there's more said in the Bible about the return of Jesus than is said about any other event in the Bible. There's more said in the Bible about the return of Jesus than about the creation or the fall of mankind. There's more said in the Bible about the return of Jesus than the birth of Jesus. There's more said in the Bible about the return of Jesus than the death of Jesus. In fact, the return of Jesus Christ is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. But even with all of that information, for the most part, it's still a lot of confusion out there. Mark Twain said this, the trouble with the world is not people know too little, but that they know so many things that ain't so. And I would say in the very same way, it's, it's not that we know so little about the return of Jesus. Again, it's mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. It's just that we know so few things, so many things that ain't so, and as a result, there's a whole lot of confusion. In fact, I'll just be honest with you, one of the reasons that I rarely address this topic, one of the reasons that I say so little about the second coming of Jesus is because I know you guys. And when we talk about it, it gets us sidetracked. 
See, this is intriguing to us, so we like to study it, we like to discuss it, we like to speculate, we like to listen to podcasts, we like to read books about it. And when we do that, we're getting that sideways energy and we're forgetting about the main thing, that the main thing is to continue spreading the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to make sure that everybody on planet Earth has the opportunity to respond to the gospel. That's the main thing. And so we can't get away from the main thing. I had a friend last week, he texted me and he says, our small group is getting ready to do a study of the book of Revelation. Do you know a good study guide? I responded back, no. Just come the next five weeks, that's all you need to know, right? In fact, you know what? If you wanna do something effective as a small group that's gonna impact the second coming of Jesus Christ, that's gonna end, you know what? Every small group, you ought to just set aside what you're doing, I will help you find the curriculum and go through a study, how do I share my faith? How do I share the gospel? Because if the end is coming, the one thing we have control over is to make sure that people know that there are options available to them. But I'm gonna tell you, and you'll see in a few minutes, at some point that window of opportunity is gonna close. Do you have family members that you wanna be with in heaven? Do you have neighbors that you want? Don't answer that, but most of us have neighbors that we wanna be in. Maybe your coworkers, right? The one thing you can do is share the gospel. But I'm telling you, sitting around, talking about it, discussing it is a total waste of time. I'm telling you, when I was in seminary, guys in seminary, they would sit around for hours talking about the second coming. Like, who, who do you think the Antichrist is? By the way, I was in seminary in the 80s. Guess who they, everybody thought it was? Henry Kissinger. He was the Antichrist. In fact, a guy wrote a book on numerology. Now, numbers in the Bible are important. Numerology is a joke. Just don't get caught up in that stuff. But a guy wrote a book and said, if you add up the letters of Henry Kissinger, it comes out to 666. Honestly, I don't even have the time for that. I just heard somebody this week say, you know who I think the Antichrist is? Bill Gates. That guy's sneaky. That guy's up to something, right? We used to have a guy that went to our church. He was a young man. He had some mental issues and and I knew that and I was aware of that. And I hadn't seen him for a period of time. And one Sunday morning I walked in and he was standing in the atrium. And I said, I, I, he's about 25, 26 years old. I said, I haven't seen you in a while. And he said, well, I've been away at a hospital. And I said, what's going on? And he says, well, I think I'm Satan. Now he's on medication. When he takes his medication, he's okay. But I don't know if he was off of it. He says, I think I'm Satan. I said, you're not Satan. Well, he said, well, how do you know? I said, you're not old enough. I mean, Satan's been around forever. You're not old enough. He said, oh, okay. He said, well, maybe I'm the Antichrist. I said, well, that's possible. That's possible, you could be the Antichrist, right? But every, who's the Antichrist? Are, are you amillennial or are you postmillennial? Are you pre-trib, are you mid-trib, you know? I need to know before I'm your friend, are you post-trib? And that's a reference to the rapture where Jesus is gonna come in the clouds and call all the Christians home before we get into the tribulation. Right, that, so that, 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 but by the way, let me just go ahead and irritate you, okay? And I've said this before, but I wanna say it again. The teaching about this idea that there's gonna be a rapture of all the Christians to heaven, and then there's gonna be a period of tribulation, that is a relatively new teaching in church history. And I know what some of you are thinking, Mike, I've been in church my whole life, you know? I've heard that my whole life. Well, you may be old, but you aren't as old as church history. I mean, church history's thousands of years old. You need to understand, okay? I'll give you a million dollars if you can find it. The word rapture never appears in the Bible. So where did this idea come from? I'm gonna tell you, you can do the research yourself. About 150 years ago, there was an article, literally a brochure, teaching this idea of the rapture. 
that Jesus was gonna come back, get all the Christians off the earth, and then the tribulation would come, then we would come back with him for the second coming, right? This teaching then made it into the footnotes of a very, very popular study Bible. You would know the study Bible. And now it's just accepted as fact. But it's not in the Bible. And right now, some of you are emailing me, so save your time, I'm just gonna delete it anyway, because in the big scheme of things, I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter. And if I'm wrong, you have all eternity to rub it in on me, right? Right? And plus this, I hope you're right. I would love to get out of here before the tribulation starts. But let's be really, really careful about basing our theology on what's convenient for us. Now, having said all of that, let me give you my view of the end times. Jesus is coming. You can put this one in the bank. Jesus is going to return to this earth. Over 300 references in the New Testament that Jesus is going to return to this earth. But what happens after the return of Jesus? What do I need to know? Well, according to the Bible, every one of us, every person that's ever lived, every person that's ever going to live, every person on planet earth is going to be judged. There's gonna be a believer's judgment for those who've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, and then there's going to be an unbeliever's judgment. And at both of these judgments, how we lived our life here on planet Earth is going to come into play. Let me just give you some verses. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything, whether it's good or evil. Revelation 20, 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death in Hades. By the way, Hades is just the Greek word for hell. Why they changed that, I'll talk about in a few weeks. But anyway, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. 1 Peter 1.17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Matthew 16, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Revelation 22, verse 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Understand, I am an each, you are an each, we are an every. And God, according to these verses and more verses, is going to judge each and every person based on our lives, based on how we lived. Which brings up the question, can we work our way into a relationship with God by doing good deeds? I mean, is it possible, it's kind of like the scales of justice that my, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and God's will say, okay, you, you made it, you made it, you got at least a C minus, okay? So you get to come to heaven and spend all eternity with me. It doesn't work that way. Paul made it very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace. Someone has said an acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. It is by grace you have been saved through faith this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, you can't work for it, so that no one can boast. So how do I explain the fact that we're not saved by our works, but we are judged by our works? Well, I can answer that question with two simple words. One word is belief, the second word is behavior. For example, our belief determines where we are going to spend eternity. I'm telling you, and you're gonna see this over the next couple of weeks as we talk about, is heaven a real place? Is hell a real place? What you believe, it is going to determine where you spend eternity. Our behavior will determine how we spend eternity. 
So let me say that again. Our beliefs will determine where we spend eternity. Our behavior while we're on this earth will determine how we spend eternity. Because you gotta understand, in heaven, you are gonna be rewarded for your works. In hell, people are gonna be punished for their works. But I'm telling you, where you spend eternity is determined by whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, that he's your personal savior. You accept that free gift of salvation. You believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, for my sins, and then three days later rose from the dead to verify and validate, I am the son of God who can take away your sins. Either trust in that or you don't trust in that. And by the way, let me just say this. You can decide that right now, and you should decide that right now because you need to understand after the return of Jesus, and it could be before we get out of church, I'll be honest with you. After the return of Jesus, understand that window of opportunity to become a follower of Jesus, to trust in Jesus as your personal savior, that window's gonna close. And what you have to look forward to is one of two judgments. The first one is called in the Bible the judgment seat of Christ. That's for Christians. That's for those who've accepted the gift of salvation. The other is called the great white throne judgment. That's for those who are not believers. But again, these judgments are not to determine your belief. See, at this point in, 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 the, in the timeline, your belief or your lack of belief, you've already determined which judgment you're gonna attend. You've already decided which line you're gonna be standing in. So let me talk about these two judgments. First of all, there's the judgment seat of Christ. Again, this is for Christians, those who've made the decision to follow Jesus. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and he's writing to Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us, there's those words again, each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. In other words, while we were alive on planet Earth, whether good or bad. And then Paul tells us what's going to take place when, as Christians, we stand before Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, notice the capitalization there, we're talking about this judgment day, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet he'll still be saved. This is not about your salvation. This is about what you did with the life that Jesus Christ gave you on this earth. And what Paul is basically saying is this. It means that as Christians, we can either be building with wood, hay, and straw, or we can be building with stuff like gold, silver, and costly stones. And we're gonna be judged. This is how I envision it. You know, you might be a loudspeaker. Okay, Michael Thomas Lee, Social Security 246. I'm not gonna give you all of it. Please come to the front of the line. And maybe Jesus will be sitting there on his throne. And Jesus may go, bring it in. And maybe a big old dump truck starts backing up. Beep, 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 beep. Right. Dump it. And there's this big pile. And then maybe he calls down a lightning bolt, but something burns it all up. And maybe Jesus comes down off of his throne and he begins to work through the ashes, you know. Oh, Mike, here's a ruby. That time that I spoke to you about that homeless guy and you actually helped him. Oh, here's a gold nugget, wow. It's that time you shared that gospel with the guy at the gym when he asked you, how do you get to heaven when you die? 
oh my, here's a little diamond of the time you gave generously when you saw that need. Hey, here's a little silver bar. I just found it. I think it's that time that you helped that widow or you reached out to those orphans. But my point is simply this. As Christians, while we're on this earth, see, we have to remember, we gotta get our head wrapped around this, that we can spend our time doing stuff that lasts forever. In other words, stuff that has eternal value. In other words, we can be involved in actually building God's kingdom, and if we do that, we're gonna be rewarded for it. Or we can spend our time doing stuff that has no eternal value whatsoever. We can spend all of our energy on ourselves. We can spend all of our time, all of our life, all of our resources building our own kingdom here on earth. That would fall into the category of things like wood and hay and straw, and it has no eternal value. Understand, the kingdom you're building on this earth is gonna have zero eternal value. It's gonna be burned up. So you're either gonna be rewarded for how you lived your life, or you're not. Now, you're still gonna be a Christian, but there's actually a third scenario. You can also do stuff that has eternal value, but because of the way you do it, maybe with the wrong attitude, the wrong motive, you're not gonna be rewarded for that either. Let me show you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, verse one. Be careful not to practice your righteousness, that would be your good deeds, in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, if you give somebody $20, some homeless guy on the corner, and then you take a picture with the homeless guy and you post on social media, look how good I am. Look what I, I found this homeless guy today and I gave him 20 bucks. Jesus is like, you better enjoy it. That was your reward right there. Well, how many likes you get on social media? That's your reward, right? So he says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, you can do good stuff in this life and not get credit for it because of the way you did it. Maybe you had a bad attitude, maybe you had a wrong motive. I'll give you an example. All those Saturday nights that I've shown up and preached with a bad attitude, because I really wanted to be at the NC State football game. So I'm not gonna get rewarded for that. Are you men who work in Kid City every once in a while because your wife nags you and you're like, I'll do it if you'll just leave me alone. So you're probably you're not gonna get rewarded for that. By the way, let me show you an interesting verse. First John chapter two, verse 28. It puts into perspective why this is so important. John writes this, and now dear children, so he knows he's talking to Christians, continue in him, in other words, continue to follow Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let me ask you a question. As a Christian, why would you be ashamed when Jesus returns? I think it's because when we stand in front of him to be judged on how we lived our lives, I think it's gonna hit us how we wasted our lives. I mean, the reality is I'm talking to a lot of you this weekend and you are believers, you are Christians, but you know what? You, you're not really serving selflessly with your life. You're not giving generously. You're not sharing the gospel. You're not helping the poor, the needy. You know, we need volunteers for the virtual learning centers. That didn't mean you show up in your radar because it's not about that for you. It, it, it's just all about what you're doing on planet Earth, your time, your money what it means to you. And I'll just tell you, and I mean this the most loving way I can, when you stand before Jesus, you're not gonna get a whole lot of rewards because you spent your time and your money on yourself. And John says you're gonna be ashamed. You're gonna be embarrassed. In fact, there's a little verse in the end of Revelation 21 where it talks about 
that Jesus during this time will reach out. How gentle is this? It's like our mom and wipe away every tear from our eye. Why would there be tears? I think when we stand before Jesus and the reality of what he did for us and how little we did for him in return hits us, it's gonna be one of those moments. But even then in his tenderness and his grace, he wipes the tear away. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, so that tells us that if you're a Christian, you're either laying up treasures on earth or you're laying up treasures in heaven. And I know how some Christians think. I don't really care whether I get many rewards or not. I just wanna make sure I get into heaven. Well, let me tell you why you should care. As you're gonna learn next week, there are gonna be varying qualities of life in heaven. It's not gonna be all equal in heaven. In fact, that's really what the parable of the minor, we've talked about that. We, remember we started the minor project and thank you COVID, right? We're gonna start that back up again as we get back together as a congregation and we're gonna see that through. But the parable in Luke chapter 19, that's what Jesus is talking about. Look what he says in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so he tells them this story. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country, and this is a reference from Jesus leaving heaven to come to earth, to have himself appointed as king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him and says, we don't want this man to be our king. You don't stop God's plans. He was made king, however, and returned home. Now, returning home is a reference to coming back to this earth. So this is a reference to the second coming. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very, very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master said, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. In other words, I didn't do squat with it. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. Verse 23, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Verse 24, then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. I'm telling you, this is the lesson of the parable. As Christians, the more responsible we are in this life with what God has given us, and I'm talking about our time, our talent, our treasure, the more responsibility we're going to have in heaven. And that means that for some of you Christians, the table's gonna be turned. And it's simply for this reason. Some of you have spent your whole life, whatever many years you have, laying up, treasures on earth, laying, on, laying up treasures on earth. I mean, you're living large, you're living the dream. It's about you, it's about now. Some of you have spent your life laying up treasures in heaven. You tithe, you serve, you share your faith, you're being faithful, you see a need, you meet it, you put the needs of others even above your own needs. And as a result of that dynamic, those of you who are living life large in this life, Guess what? You may find yourself in heaven, I don't know, cleaning the swimming pools 
of the Christians that have maybe been faithfully serving in Kid City or parking cars or making coffee or greeting people at the door or giving generously so we can continue to reach the triangle and change the world. My point is this, you should care about this life and how you're investing in God's kingdom. And that's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. You're gonna stand before Jesus and here's a good question, have you been faithful? But this is what you need to understand. That is going to determine the quality of your life for all eternity. So you gotta ask yourself, do I wanna put all my eggs into this life and get the joy out of it here because heaven's gonna be heaven, but it not, it's not gonna be, all eternity's not what, be what it could be. Or am I gonna start laying up treasures now in heaven? I mean, that's something you gotta think about. But what about the great white throne judgment? This won't take long. By the way, why do we call it the great white throne judgment? Well, I'll show you. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. There you go. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, I said earlier that believers will be judged on their works and we're gonna be rewarded accordingly. Let me ask you a question. Let's say that an unbeliever, okay? Great guy, good moral person, law-abiding, you know, charitable, doesn't kick the neighbor's dog, but he never reads the Bible, doesn't go to church, doesn't believe any of that stuff, never gives his life to Jesus, never responds to the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Will that good moral person receive the same punishment as, say, a murderer? or a rapist, or say a child molester. No. Now, understand, and I don't know how to say this in a kind word, they're both gonna go to hell because they never accepted God's gift of salvation. But as you're gonna see in a couple of weeks, there are actually degrees of punishment in hell. In fact, let me just show you a little sample. Matthew chapter 11, from Jesus' own words, he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more honorable, more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, why is that so significant? That was Jesus' hometown. You, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, we know that story, Sodom would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is what Jesus was saying. I spent time in those cities. I spent time in Chorazin. I spent time in, in Bethsaida. I lived in Capernaum. You saw me perform miracles. You heard me teach the parables. You heard me share the gospel and talk about my kingdom and you rejected me. And then he says this, if I would have done those same things in Sodom, if I would have performed the miracles and shared the gospel, if I would have done that in Sodom, they would have repented. And then he says in verse 24, I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. By the way, which sin does Jesus consider worse? What was going on in Sodom? Our arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. Give you something to talk about in your small group this week. Now, I know this stuff is heavy. We're talking about the end times. What if? 
And when I talk about this stuff, I kind of feel like a doctor who says, you know what? You have a disease and you're gonna die from this disease unless you accept the cure. The, the good news is there is a cure. There is a cure. And I want you to know, I, I'm not trying to scare you. I, I'm trying to tell you, according to the Bible, this is the future. The next big thing that's going to happen is one day, Jesus is gonna to return to this earth. And then every one of us are gonna be judged. But there is a cure. There is a solution. That window of opportunity is still open. So you still get to decide which line you're gonna be in. You still get to decide, is my ultimate eternal destination gonna be a place called heaven? Or is it gonna be a place the Bible calls hell? It's open right now, but I tell you, right, one day when Jesus returns, that window is going to close. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once, after that to face judgment. Let's bow together. Let me just ask you a question before we wrap it up. Have you ever accepted God's free gift of salvation? And I know what some of you are thinking, Mike, I've really tried. I've really tried to be a good person. I've really tried to read the Bible. I've really tried to come to church. I just, I just can't seem to do it. It's not about anything you do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. So he did for you what you can't do for yourself. There's no way you could work or earn your way back into a relationship with God. So Jesus, I'll be willing to go and I will be your punishment for you. I will shed my blood to pay for your sins. And then three days later, I'll rise from the dead to verify I'm the one who can take away your sins. If you will accept me as your savior, I will save you. So it's not about you trying to be a Christian. Understand it's God's grace that saves you. And then it's God's grace and God's power that helps you through his spirit live the Christian life. Man, if you've never accepted that gift, I'm gonna lead you in a little prayer. Nothing magical about this prayer, but I'm telling you, if you talk to God and say something like this to God, he is going to hear you and he is gonna save you. See, the door's still open. So if you wanna do that, just, just pray this prayer. God, I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. And I receive your son Jesus as my savior. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sins. And I believe that three days later, he rose from the dead to verify that he was your son who could take away my sins. Thank you, Father, for saving me today. In your son's precious name, I pray. Now, if you prayed that prayer, tell somebody. Tell somebody. If you're here with us live, tell somebody. If you're home with your family, tell them. Pick up the phone, text someone, but tell them. Contact us here at gethope.net. Just let us know. Just say, I gave my life to Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus. Why would I say that? Well, this is what Paul said in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just tell somebody. 
Let us know how we can come alongside of you and help you as you begin this journey to experience the life without the fear of the future that God designed you to experience. Father, I pray right now, right now, that you would draw every person to you. I thank you that for right now, because of your incredible mercy and grace and love, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, that you haven't yet sent your son back. But we know that day's going to happen. And so I pray that you would draw every person into a relationship with you, but help them understand you gave them a free will. They get to make that choice. Father, I can't wait to see what you're gonna do in all of our lives throughout this series. It's in this your son's holy name, Jesus, we pray.